it was one of the first trainings I ever had about going into a prison. And the person that was running it said, I want everyone to take a minute and think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Now imagine that thing is going to define you for the rest of your life. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm talking to Ben Deliacono. Ben holds a master's in English from Rutgers University. As an adjunct English professor, he teaches rhetoric, composition, first-year writing, and literature courses at Rutgers Newark, Montclair State University, and NJIT. Ben is a full-time faculty member for the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers Newark via New Jersey STEP, the New Jersey Scholarship and Transformative Education in Prisons Consortium. He teaches college courses within the New Jersey prison system and has spent the past five years teaching in seven prisons throughout the state. In the episode today, Ben and I talk about um, being English majors and having people ask us, oh, so you want to be a teacher? And Ben fought that path tooth and nail for about 10 years, um, but eventually found his way to teaching, uh, found it to be incredibly fulfilling. And so we talk about, you know, what that path was like to teaching and why the NJ Step program in particular, working in prisons, um, what he's learned from that and what he carries outside with him. And my favorite part of the conversation is towards the end when we talked about forgiveness um, and how actually the hardest people to forgive sometimes are ourselves. (laughs) So I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. And um, I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. Enjoy. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Victoria. How are you? Good. How are you? I am I'm well, thank you for asking. I was wondering if we could start by just having you give a little description of what the NJ Step program is and also how you came to become involved with it. Okay. Like the short of it is it's bringing uh, college level education to um, currently incarcerated citizens in New Jersey. I don't know. I've been in and out of about seven or eight prisons in the state over the past uh, five years. Um, but we're, we're narrowing focus a little bit, but, uh, we have a pretty big presence in the state and it's, uh, education is in prisons. Every prison does have, typically has a, an education wing or an education department. And one of the big changes that, uh, NJ step has brought is giving, uh, incarcerated citizens the opportunity to go past a GED. Uh, what led me to teaching at NJ Step is uh, kind of a story about understanding how the current uh, adjuncting system works in um, universities. But full-time positions are scarce uh, at this level of academia, and most educators, teachers, instructors, professors, what what have you, uh, they're contingent faculty. So I graduated uh, with a master's from Rutgers and I started uh, teaching composition and uh, I soon realized that uh, you only make money by the class. So I was trying to make a living doing this and uh, I had to piece together um, a a work lifestyle between multiple universities. I had to, um, at the time, I was teaching classes at Rutgers, NJIT, and Montclair, Montclair State University. And I was just like fresh into it and realizing like, you know, 
more classes means more money. And I got an email at Rutgers and it said, is anyone interested in picking up an extra class? And that's just what I did. Um, I didn't, you know, my first, my first class ever in a prison, uh, you know, first time there I'm meeting students for the first time who are currently incarcerated. And their first question is, why do you want to do this? Why are you here? And if they still ask me to this day, it's flat out like I'm doing this to make money. I'm doing this because it's a job. But it's also one of the first lessons I learned about teaching in prisons is that you have to you have to bring your most authentic self and you you have to be, you know, real. You know, on the surface, my motivation is, yes, like I need to pay bills. I need to, you know, try and survive myself. But it didn't take me long within my first class to be like, if they took took away the money, I would still do it. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, my experiences teaching in prison are far and away um, not not to not to speak ill of any of my my students who are on the outside. I love them all dearly. Um, but the teaching inside it's it's a different kind of education. It's like um, it's teaching behind enemy lines and the bonds that you get with your students are so strong and uh, the amount of work that they put in is just, it's, it's just incredible. I would like to back up a little bit and ask you some questions just about how you arrived at teaching. I was reading your resume and I noticed that it looked like maybe there was like a, a 10 year gap or something between when you got your BA and when you got your master's. Is that right? Wow, you noticed. Yes, there is. <laughs> in the period between when you got your BA and when you got your master's, did you know, oh, I really want to <laughs> teach. I really want to get my master's someday. Um, what did your life look like during that time? Oh, Were you still man. connected to education? Here's the thing. So I graduated with a BA in English uh, in 1999. And... I chose the major of English out of a lack of interest in any other subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's is my go-to English answer. Major. I'm stealing. <laughs> yeah. I understand. I'm, I'm ste- I steal that answer from William S. Burroughs, um, but out of a lack of interest in any other subject. And I, I, I had like I went to college not with an idea of what degree I was going to have for a job I was just in school and I I, to be totally honest I was not forward thinking about any kind of job at all I didn't have it in my I mean maybe it was because it was still the 90s and like, like I wasn't concerned with this is so expensive that I need a return on investment and I was just able to just follow just what I liked and what interested me. And I loved, I loved college very, very much. I was able to um, take classes on anything that I wanted. I mean, I was an English major, but like I had, I had a lot of freedom and I didn't think about any sort of job. So I, of course, 
you know, you graduate and you leave your college town and like the, the cold, hard reality mm-hmm. of, of the world hits you real quick when you're like, man, I had everything figured out and now I'm back in my parents' house. <laughs> like, and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I need to get a job and I know I need to get out fast. So, um, I, I was looking for jobs, you know, I started just like, like, again, this is before the internet and stuff like that. I was looking like, I was going through newspapers, uh, looking for jobs and like copy editing or, you know, magazine work. And I didn't want to do any of that stuff, but I figured that's what I had to do. Um, you know, as a fellow English major, it was always one of the most awkward conversations I felt that would ever come up. Like if you meet someone and oh, you're in college or a student, like invariably the first question is what's your major. Mm-hmm. And anytime I would say I'm an English major, like the, the response was always, Oh, so you want to be a teacher? Yes. I was just going to say, so you want to be a teacher? Okay. Yeah. So the whole thing was every time someone would say that to me, I'd be like, no, I will do whatever I want to do. And one of the main people, uh, in, like there's a lot of people in my life at the time that were really pushing the teaching thing on me. But one of the people that really pushed, not didn't push it on me, but kept bringing up was my mother. And my mother was like, Benjamin, you should think about being a teacher and, and, and stuff like that. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was this time. But the whole thing was like, I didn't want her to be right. I know. I didn't I know. want everyone to be right. I didn't I want know. everyone to tell me what to do. I didn't, because I didn't go to school as an English major to become a teacher. I went to school and I was an English major to learn about everything that I ever wanted to learn about and to, you you know, to follow, to, to follow a thread of questions that led to answers that gave me more questions. Like I was just insatiable for finding new stuff. And, uh, so I get out of school and I'm like, I gotta get a job. I gotta get out. And I was looking for jobs. Uh, I started looking for copy editing jobs and things like that. And I went on job interviews and I just bombed every interview that you could think of. And I, and looking back on it now, it's because I just inherently didn't want any of these jobs. Yeah. Um, my idea about this was then to just apply for anything and just get practice talking to people like on job interviews and get practice answering the questions like, where do you see yourself in five years and all that stuff. So uh, one of the job interviews I took was for a tech company. It was, it was actually for um, a sales engineering job. It was technically an engineer, right? For computer telephony systems. And, uh, this was, you know, all this stuff now is software, you know, when you call up a phone and for this press one for mm-hmm. that press two, um, at the time in the nineties, uh, late nineties, early two thousands, you needed specific hardware to run this along with the software. Now, like most of the hardware it's standard. So I got hired at this company and I was shocked and I recall clearly, you know, I was called in for a second interview where they gave me an offer letter. Um, and I said to them, I was like, you know, I know nothing about this, right? I, I have no idea how to do any of this stuff. Like I'm an English major. And what they brought up was the thing that I said in the interview was that I told them that I really liked education. 
I liked being in environments where I could learn things and I felt most comfortable in that. And they said, you got a great attitude. We'll teach you anything you need to know. Mm. I worked at that company uh, for about three or four years. The, the funny part is it was a small company and within three months of me getting hired, the company was acquired by Intel. <laughs> so my first job out of college with an English degree was as an engineer at Intel, <laughs> right? Um, I don't think anything like that would ever happen today. And, you know, I did the job. I did it well enough, but it just wasn't for me. And after that, I was um, laid off um, when the quote-unquote tech bubble burst post 9-11. And um, I, I collected unemployment for the better part of a year. And I guess that um, I treated it at the time in my early 20s. I believe the, the lingo is uh, fun employment mm-hmm. uh, because I, you know, I was getting a paycheck, um, but really I was kind of hanging out at a, a bar a lot. And what I realized uh, after a while was I'm at this bar all the time anyway, might as well make some money. So I learned, um, uh, I learned how to bartend and I became a bartender for, I was a bartender for a real long time. Um, uh, I worked as a bartender. I worked as a waiter, uh, server. Uh, I was a pet nanny. I walked dogs. I dug ditches. I, I fixed houses. I did a lot of stuff for 10 years. Ready? All fighting what people just kept telling me that I should do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I did this because for so long everyone was like, you should be a teacher. And like, again, like, I'm punk AF. I'm not going to do it. You know, I realized I was, uh, I was turning 30. Um, I did what a lot of people, I guess, of my – at and my age group at the time started doing was we're going to go back to school. And I said, I'm going to go back to school and I don't know. I, and I had no, and again, like, like this is what's messed up. I still wasn't thinking about having a job with the degree. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to go to school yeah. <laughs> and I had already had a degree in English and I was like, I guess I should get another degree in English. Uh, because that's what my previous degree is in. Like, honestly, that was my thought process. It would be easier for me to get into a program, an English program. Um, I was just thinking about, like, school made me feel better. School was where I felt things made sense. Um, you know, I, I maintained my bar attending jobs, and I applied to a bunch of schools, and I got accepted to Rutgers. And, you know, I started taking classes again. When I graduated, like when my colleagues were graduating, like we're on the road to graduating, like they were already kind of like looking towards um, adjuncting positions at universities, like applying for them. And I was like, oh, like that's something I can like, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even like, <laughs> oh, that's something I could do with that. And it was really, really difficult for me to find a job. Um, but I, um, I eventually did find a job. And uh, I started working at uh, Point Park University in Pittsburgh. That was my first my first gig. And um, I realized right away that I was 
very well prepared from from Rutgers. I was trained very, very well. I knew how to write a syllabus. I knew how to hold a class. I knew how to grade papers. Um, I knew how to do all this stuff. I was prepared to teach the course, but I wasn't prepared for how much I was going to deeply love doing it. Um, I, I fell for teaching really, really hard, really, really quick, and uh, hated that I had to tell my mom that she was right. <laughs> she loved it, yeah. still loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what I mean? And I, I think that, and then I've been doing it ever since. I have never felt so professionally fulfilled in my life. Yeah. And it's, it's something that is so satisfying to me. I wish it for everybody. I can relate to that because yeah, I was, I majored in English as well. And everyone always said, so you want to be a teacher? And I, did you you hate it as much as I did? I just was (laughs) like, like, I really hated it. I always felt like I don't want to do that by default. Um, partially because I think like teaching takes to be like being a good teacher. You do have to, what, kind of as you're describing you have to really want to be doing that and um I just didn't want to do it by default and I guess I guess also like I wanted to experience other things I felt like that was important um yeah for me as a person to experience um other jobs and things like that I mean I have I was a writing center tutor that's how I met our friend Melissa um and I loved that. Like I, if I could have yeah. done that full time, I would have, but I didn't have wow. my master's. So, you know, I could only be part time. And, um, so maybe, right. maybe my path will go back to teaching someday. Um, because I, I really loved that. Um, so I can certainly understand why you find it as fulfilling as you do as well. Um, because there's just something about yeah, being, being able to have, like, I think something particularly about English too, and even teaching writing, like as a, as a writing center tutor, I would be working with students like in the writing center, someone would come in. I've never met them before. We have a half hour appointment slotted. Mm-hmm. We sit down. They are writing a personal narrative essay about what's the, the, the biggest thing that's changed you in your life. So like, boom, we're sitting there <laughs> and we're talking about like yeah. something so intimate to them. And yeah. The goal right off the bat is like, I, okay, I need to listen to this person and they need to feel safe with me. And I need oh my to, God, 100%. right? Yeah. Like I need to, to trust you. notice my own biases arise and then put them aside, you know, <laughs> and like all this Absolutely. stuff. Um, so I can completely, it's not easy all the time too, man. No. It's really not. Yeah. I think it's like really humbling too, because I would always, I would always catch myself. Like I, you know, someone would. I'd, I'd go over to the student I'd say, okay, like, you know, let's, let's have our session. And I would make some judgment based on anything, based on like the t-shirt they're wearing, mm-hmm. the, the band. Of oh, the, really? Oh, they like that band. So I, I make some quick assumption about them. And okay. then as soon as we would start talking, I'd be like, oh, I was totally wrong. Like, okay. Do you know what I mean? I'm that, here's the thing. I'm the guy who's probably wearing a t-shirt with a band <laughs> yeah. on it. I, I, I don't I know what you're talking about too because I think it's the uh, it's the number one struggle or I think here's the thing it's the cool thing about teaching English in the humanities where it becomes really personal mm-hmm. uh, um, sometimes um, you know at the 
uh, at the university level, like I'm not asking anyone to write me a personal narrative. Right. Yeah, this was a basic right. skills course at a community college, yeah. so they would start with something personal because that stu- the student is an expert on their right. own life, so they can write right. from their from their own experience, like as a means right. of learning about writing skills and things like that. But yeah, I they know that's not the- that's not the typical thing that college students yeah. are necessarily doing. But but even just talking about stories, right, and talking about. Uh, characters and where do your interpretations come mm-hmm. from where do your readings come from like it, you can't help but it to be a little bit personal sometimes um but like and I learned early on like the the first thing about um teaching it's like like they they gotta trust you mm-hmm. um on on a lot of levels especially in English like number one um I think that a lot of students out there have been hurt by English teachers um, more so than math teachers Um, and hurt in a lot of ways. And I think that one of the ways, and again, no fault to high school English teachers, but um, high school curriculums, um, like everything based on standardized testing, Mm -hmm. right? English humanities, it's not it's not a discipline that works well with standardized testing. I don't care what you know about the text. I know it really well. I've read it a lot. What I do care about is, do you understand it? It's about problem solving and critical thinking mm-hmm. and understanding and working with ambiguity. Um, that is the that is one of the biggest skills. Yeah. Versatility in dealing with ambiguity because that's what the world is. There, there are no clear answers. And how do you deal with or how do you work through those problems where it, not that it could go either way, but it could go a lot of different ways. Right. Um, so what I learned is like you, they need to trust you. And one of the, the ways that I, I do this routinely with all my classes is um, you know, going back to that, that first prison class you know, they ask me right away, why are you here? It's because I open classes, every one of my classes the same way. Ask me anything, go. And I really, like, I really pulled myself out there. Like, mm. whatever you want to know about me, I will tell you. Within reason, there are certain things, you know, obviously if it gets too personal and things like that, I'll say I don't feel comfortable sharing that. But, you know, try something else. Like, if anyone, if they want to know anything about my work experience, like, I'll do that if they want to ask me like what my favorite shows are. I'll do that. Like, but um, they 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 really need to trust you because essentially writing is a private act, and I'm asking them to make it public, and that is mm-hmm. really vulnerable. Yeah, <laughs> like it puts you in a really vulnerable position. I was gonna say I feel like um, when I was working at the writing center, like there would be people who put had such a tough exterior um like a range of ages because again i was at a community college so it could be anyone from an 18 year old right out of high school to a guy oh yeah or a woman or whatever in their 50s coming back to school after you know like wanting to change their career or something and you could have someone 30 years older than me who's got some really tough exterior and as soon as they sit down at the table and we start talking about they're writing you just see the six-year-old yeah. kid come out in them like yeah, right. it's oh, crazy yeah. and so i i am really curious um in the setting of of being in a prison what is it like dealing with that 
vulnerability factor? Well, um, okay. So the, the first thing, the first thing about it that I have to say is that, um, my, my, my students on the inside, again, not to diminish any of my students on the outside, but the big difference between them is that most of my students on the outside are, you know, fresh out of high school, they're 18. And you're saying and inside, most my, meaning inside prison, outside. Inside yes. prisons, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, inside, outside. Um, most of my students on the outside are fresh out of high school, 18. Um, most of my students on the inside are in their 50s, like 40s or 50s. They're old men and women, old men and women. Um, I, I do work in youth correctional facilities, um, which, which are a completely different animal. Um, but the majority of my experience has been in uh, men's and women's medium and maximum security prisons. And the whole thing here is these men and women have experienced things in their lives that we can't even imagine. Um, some of these things are unspeakable and I don't even, and I'm not even speaking about some of the things that they may or may not have done. I'm speaking about what life is like inside a prison. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're not great. Um, and when you kind of, and, and in terms of the vulnerability, like their lives are a state of vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? Constantly. And, what happens is we're coming in there and with university education, we are coming in with something and saying, look, I've got something that you want. I've got something you need. And what, what the thing is that they want is, you know, how can I get it? Okay, here we go. Right. All my students in prison, they are not afraid of anything. They have been through so much. They are fearless, 100%. They are only afraid of one thing and one thing only, and that's getting out and going right back in. Mm. Repeatedly, this has come up. What are you afraid of? Or not that it comes up in class, but like, like I ask it explicitly. But it'll come up over the course of things. Like I've had many students, like, what are you afraid of? Like, they'll say, I'm afraid of getting out of here and coming back in. I've had other students say, I'm afraid of dying in here. And when you, when you think of it in those terms, like the stakes are high and the ability of being vulnerable with a little text, um, you know, in an English class becomes no problem. And they really go for it um, pretty much across the board. Uh, they really dive in. Um, to use an expression about teaching in prison, it's pedagogical heaven. Um, this is the type of place where before I'm even settled or, you know, getting books out, they're asking me questions, you know, before my jacket's off, they're like, Hey man, I was thinking about it. Like they're ready to go. Mm. Um, when I teach on the inside, there's never a lull in conversation. Mm. I'm, you know, they're, they, they're fighting for it. They want everything that I can give them. And as a result, like, honestly, like teaching in prisons has, has made me a better teacher. Mm. Um, they, you, you know what I mean? They, they, 
they they've they repeatedly bring the best out of me because there's no half-assing a class right. there's no phoning it in. there's never any phoning it in like because they are bringing their a plus plus game so you have to bring double that mm. you know what i mean so the the idea of like um approaching it is uh, to be for lack of a better word it's easy um there's there's never there's never any pretense of shame or fear there is i would say sometimes a bit of um self-deprecation mm. or uh, mild like self-doubt like i'm not good at this i can't do this i'll never be able to do this everyone told me i'd never be able to do this and this is when you know, as an English teacher, or I mean, as any teacher, it's like you got to turn into a coach and be like, you got this, trust me, like, mm -hmm. I will get you there. Like, just follow my lead. Like, just do, you know, just don't give up. Like, you can do this. I'm, I'm sure it varies from student to student, but why are most of them choosing to take college courses? Are most of them um, taking them with an eye for getting out and... I, I would say that currently, um, most of my students will will eventually get out, mm -hmm. uh, or they're or even that they're close to getting out. I mean, I don't know what any of them have done. Some of them have told me, uh, but it's not something that I typically look look. I mean, you can look it up; it's you know right. public knowledge. But I typically don't, right? Uh, just because, you know, doesn't seem like it'd be helpful they don't for get, you. <laughs> Well, no, it's a, it's a, it's completely irrelevant to our relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not like they get a dossier on me mm -hmm. and you know, my students on the outside, it's not like I get to a list of every mm -hmm. bad thing that they've ever done. So it's, it's pretty irrelevant to me, but the majority I would say in, in the contemporary sort of cohorts that they're developing, it's always in the eye of like, um, you know, they're going to get out and the, and the whole idea of like getting involved with the program, it's, um, you know, they have to apply for it mm. and they have to go through, they have to go through a pretty rigorous process to get involved because, uh, we have a limited number of space and we have no shortage of people that want in Yeah, because it's such a great opportunity. There's, there's processes involved where you can, um, transfer to a community college, um, and continue your because you're are because while they are inside they are registered as full students mm -hmm. at um, a community college or if they already have their associate's degree if they've earned their associate's degree in uh, Rutgers and you said that you you said you learned early on that authenticity is really important in that environment could oh, you just man. talk a little bit more about that yeah like you know, um, the majority of my, my students, my, my students who are incarcerated, like, man, they've, um, like, again, like, I don't even, you don't even need the details to, the full details to kind of know, but, like, these are people that have been, you know, bullied by a system, um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about, like, government and stuff like that, but, like, you know, systemic issues of poverty, um, addiction, what have you. Um, and, you know, with lack of a support and it's like, man, like these people have bullshit detectors 
better than you and I will ever understand. Mm -hmm. And you you have to, you you have like, there's, I don't know why you would ever want to do it, but like with anybody, but like, you can't like putting on airs is not going to work. Trying to, to, to go in, in this idea of like, I'm wearing, you know, a tweed jacket and we are discussing literature. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not going to, it's not going to work. Like, that's not the population. And I, I think that, like, one of the rarest commodities inside a prison is is uh, humanness. And you need to kind of be a real person. Like, and I don't mean it like you, keeping it real, but like that you're human like you're not you're not going to try to deceive someone you're not going to try to lie to them or manipulate them which is frankly which and I don't mean this like almost in their lives but that's like what they've learned from school mm-hmm. even um and yeah and I, and I think the other part is like at this point it's like I don't know how I don't know how else to do it mm-hmm. because I've learned that um, where I've, I've really learned that education, especially in the humanities, it's not industrial, it's organic. And you have to kind of go at the speed of your students. And the only way to know what the speed of your students is, is if you really talk to them and if you really listen to them and they're not going to listen to you or talk to you unless like there is an environment of trust and an environment of safety. Um, this can be one of the most daunting things where someone's trying to coach you towards finding your own voice because it's been stifled for so long. Mm. I'm curious if there were any misconceptions that you had going in or just something that you thought, oh, this is going to be easy and turned out to be hard or, oh, th- that's going to be really hard and it turned out to be Mm-hmm. easier than you expected like were, was there any sort of shit you know what were some of the major shifts that happened for you in how you thought about teaching or even just how you thought about interacting with people engaging with people tons of stuff tons yeah. of stuff um so ooh, that was my cat <laughs> i'm glad we got a meow in there yeah sorry bud um so first misconception um, what do I know about prisons, right? Everything I know about prisons, I learned from TV and movies mm-hmm. and, um, the majority of them are really, really wrong. And I think, uh, and so the first, like what you realize in prison is that it's not that everything's scheduled is that there are rules. There are a lot of rules and they're subject to change on a whim by anybody mm-hmm. there who's above you. Mm-hmm. And as a result, like it really is an environment of kind of anxiety um, because you never know what's going to happen now. Like now grand scheme of things, like my experience with this sort of stuff, like I'm a tourist going in there. Like yeah. I know, like I have not fully experienced prison at all. I, again, like I am a tourist at best, but I have been subject to, I'm here to do a class and they're like, no, you're not. There is no class today. Oh, but I, but I'm supposed to be. And what do you learn right away? Don't argue, just accept mm-hmm. it and go. Right. Um, when you hear something like you're done today, you guys are done today. They're leaving. You can't fight it. You can't argue it. Right. It's done. 
Like, and that's, and that's one of the things about it. It's like the rules change and, you know, for, and I'm not painting it necessarily as a bad thing. Sometimes there's a lot of really great reasons for this stuff. Um, and, and again, I don't want to paint this like, you know, I'm doing a good job with my students and all the officers in there are bad. Uh, but, but prison is about everything being in flux. Like you, like you can't, um, like there's never, like there's never going to be a, um, um, a moment where you're not like kind of holding your breath. Mm. And again, I think that's another reason why the students I have that they love it so much because it's an hour or two out of their week where there's going to be someone who's going to treat them like a human. There's going to be, you know, a couple hours, hours out of their week where they can kind of take a breath. I mean, I, I got the sense early on how into it they were and the, the kind of, um, excitement about it, uh, became kind of infectious mm. and, you know, it became that drive to spend those extra hours in prepping, you know what I mean? It became those extra, you know, the drive, uh, for those extra hours to think of like, all right, I know that they're going to ask about this, so I need to research it mm. because that's the other thing about being inside. It's like, you know, on the outside, what's like great is like if something comes up like that, maybe I don't have the answer to right away. We can just go, well, let's look it up. Right. You know, we have a computer in the class. Everyone's got a laptop open. We have phones, etc. Um, you know, you can't quite do that in there. And I, I not to say that I don't do it, but if I if I can, um, I don't like to be like, well, let me write it down and I'll research it for next time. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to be able to give an answer right there, um, because ready, that's organically where, where the learning's going and I want to be on top of it and follow it and encourage it and cultivate it and like, let it happen. Um, and if like, there's a question where I'm not sure, not to say that like, I'm a big know-it-all, um, that, that like I don't want to stifle where things are going. I want to be able to be prepared for this. So as a result, like a lot of my prepping for classes has been like trying trying to think ten steps ahead, mm. you know, of where they may or may not go. You can't you you can't rely on a crutch of the internet mm-hmm. on the outside. Like it's old school. Yeah. It's like some some of my class some of my classrooms. It's just a chalkboard. Yeah. Um, like my class right now, it's a tiny, tiny room with a dirty chalkboard that some like hasn't been washed in months. So it's like, (laughs) it's all foggy and hazy from all the chalk that's on. It's like, you can barely see on it sometimes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, some places I go to like the, the big to do is, yo, we've got whiteboards now. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa. Um, some places, uh, some prisons, I get to have a VCR. I've had to, um, think differently outside the box of sort of like what, even down to like what materials or what, what stuff I'm going to like, what exact books or, um, things I'm going to choose. I'm curious about what you take outside with you. Like when you leave, what stays with you? And in what way do you you feel like you are changed at all? Um. (laughs) I wish you could see the look on my face right now. (laughs) 
Like, I have all of a sudden stood up, like, sat up straight when my eyes are very wide. <laughs> what do I take with me? Um, and am I changed? I've learned to rethink how I feel about forgiveness, mm-hmm. um, how I feel about redemption, um, how I feel about rehabilitation, uh, how I feel about punishment. Um, how I feel about like all those things that are entwined in, in, in those walls, you know, um, uh, one of the reasons why, uh, teaching in prison suits me, I think is, um, I have PTSD and I don't, uh, one of the parts of like my PTSD is that like, I don't register threats very quickly. And as a result, like I, I'm not afraid at all <laughs> when I walk into prisons, like there's, don't, I don't want to say that like, I have never been, um, I, and I shouldn't say I've never been afraid inside. There have been some parts like that have been a little like, uh, too real for me. Mm. Uh, when I first started doing it, like as an example, like just the, the slamming of doors, like these doors are so big, they're so heavy when they slam, like they reverberate through you. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, and the the first time you go through it, first couple times, it's kind of like, you know, um, shocking, like a little bit of a jolt. Um, I'm so used to it now, it's like it doesn't even, it's not even there. I think, and I think like, you know, when you were talking about earlier, like someone coming in with a t-shirt, like you might judge them by it. It's like, it's one of the things that's, that I think I'm suited for doing this. It's like, I just kind of don't do that. Um, like in the prison setting, it's like, these are just, this is just, you know, the job. Like, this is just, I'm good. Like, these are people I'm dealing with. Like, I don't want to say people I'm dealing with, but these are my students that I'm working with right mm-hmm. now. You know, um, I, you know, I was at a training once on going, it was one of the first trainings I ever had about going into a prison. And the person that was running it said, um, I want everyone to take a minute and think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. The absolute worst thing. She was like, and you all know what it is and ready for me. I know what mine is right away and it's bad. And then she said, now imagine that thing, that moment, maybe that dumb choice you made when you were a kid is going to define you for the rest of your life. Mm. And everyone's going to always know about it. And everyone's always going to talk about it. And the whole point of like, is that fair? You know? And if there, if we really do believe in a system that's rehabilitative, not just punitive, then we have to look past those things. And, uh, and to be honest, that was not something that I inherently knew when I started doing this. Um, not that I was all about punishment, but it's not like from a privileged point of view, it's not something I ever really had to think about. And, uh, it has, it is something that I've deeply thought about since. I don't know. And like, what do I, what do I take with me? I mean, like I take, um, I take all of that with me, you know what I mean? Like, Um, it's as simple as, you know, when I think of all these men and women that I have met and worked with over the years, it always, uh, this might sound silly, 
but it's one of those things that always blows me away. Whenever I leave, they always say, drive safe. Mm. And the, like, seriously, and the majority of them, like, they haven't driven a car for 30 years. Yeah. Like, and do you know what I mean? Like, and I, and it's, I, I, I don't know, like, only another driver can tell another driver to drive safe. But they're so, what I'm getting at is, like, they're so far removed from it it seems. And when, and they always say it like drive safe, get home safe. It's, it just seems to be like the kindest thing in the world to me. Yeah. Um, as something as simple as that, because part of it is like, be well, live your life. Thank you for coming. Well, like, we want to see you again, please come back, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. Like the way that you would treat, um, a, a friend or a family member, you know, uh, when I'm when when I'm at Rutgers or NGIT, like you know, I I always tell my students like, have a good week. I love you. You'll do the best you can. Like all that stuff. No one ever tells me to drive safe. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And not to, not yeah. to say they don't wish that I drive safe, but like it's that whole thing of like we're we're not we're not leave. You know, I'm not. Uh, we're kind of departing. Yeah. From one another. There's moment, a lot of generosity you know? in that. <laughs> Right. I'm not wrong in that. Right. No, I mean, coming from from. Yeah. From that perspective of people who can't leave, who can't drive away to be thinking of you in that way. Like that feels like there's generosity in that. And yeah. Do you find that you forgive more easily in your personal life? um, After with with these experiences and with your your different ways of thinking about forgiveness and redemption and things like that. Um, do you forgive yourself more easily? Do you forgive the people in your life? More easily? Uh, okay. Do I, all right. Um, this is a good question. It's a, this is a very personal question. It is a very personal question. So, so you don't have to answer it. Uh, you can I answer it however answer you want. You don't have to answer it. Victoria, I will answer this question. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so I would say that, um, coinciding with me becoming a teacher, um, I found my way finally to see a therapist. Um, it took me until I was 34 to, to see a therapist and, um, it, uh, it didn't just change my life. It saved my life. And one of the things that I definitely had to deal with was a lot of anger issues and my anger issues were not that like I flew off the handle or I was, you know, um, you know, I would let my rage out or anything. That was that, um, I kept it always bottled up mm-hmm. and it was, I, I think that, uh, rage is an, uh, ugly emotion, right? Even at the time I would say that I thought that anger was very ugly mm-hmm. and, um, I, I didn't have a lot of good role models in expression of anger when I was younger. So it led me to view it as very uh, unspeakably ugly and I just bottled it up. It took me a long time to understand that anger uh, is human. Anger is okay. Anger is good. Um, But it needs to be separated from its counterpart, which was rage. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of dealing with, anger or forgiveness. And I I think like, this is kind of like 
correlated to the idea of, of forgiveness for me, um, dealing, dealing with all of this. Um, I, I'm definitely not someone who's quick to get angry. Um, I'm definitely for people around me. Um, I'm definitely someone, I don't want to say quick to forgive, but, um, I do forgive. Um, not, not that, and here's the thing, because I don't have, because I'm, I, I understand how my anger works. Um, like no one need, no one's going to offend me. So I don't need to forgive anybody. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Does that make sense? Taking offense. Right. So there's, there's a few things that I need to forgive other people of, um, when it does come up. Yes. I, I'm, I would probably say, um, I am quicker to forgive now than I ever have been in my life. Um, in terms of to answer your question, do I forgive myself? Um, that one's, that's a whole nother animal. And that one's really, really difficult for me. Um, that one is, that's, that's, I'm still seeing I'm still seeing a therapist. <laughs> do you know, um, you know, intellectually, I know that I love my job. Intellectually, I know that I am good at my job. But emotionally, not all the times, um, but in my basis moments when I am feeling sad, lonely, depressed, or, you know, vulnerable, um, just because of how I was brought up, because of, um, you know, my conditioning, my role models, what have you, I, um, I do go towards that moment of like, I am the worst person that has ever lived. Yeah. I am, a, I'm a failure. I'm a failure at my job. I fail my students all the time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and, and intellectually, I know that that's not right, but that's where emotionally, like I'm just conditioned to go. Yeah. Um, and and like uh, and it, and it and you know for the most part it's like you know it's a fleeting thing and I go oh god I'm being stupid again like just like ugh just keep going uh, but sometimes like again like when you know things happen like you know as they always do like you know you're gonna get sad sometimes you're gonna get depressed sometimes you're gonna get down sometimes um, you know it's it's trying to learn how to not. Uh, succumb to like bad behaviors, bad, bad habits, um, of like, you know, letting those things feed you and take over. So, um, I, I would say I'm, I'm good at forgiving those around me, but for, for myself, um, it is a work in progress sometimes. Uh, and I, again, like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm like constantly beating myself up. No, I think a lot of uh, people can relate to that. I think okay. for a lot of people, that's like the work of a lifetime, you know, <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. developing self-compassion, you know, it actually makes me think of, struggle sometimes. there's a story about the Dalai Lama giving a talk in somewhere in the U S and there was like a translator who was helping, um, to translate questions during a Q and a session with like a big, you know, audience and someone asked about self-hatred, like, and how, you know, asking the Dalai Lama, how do we work with, you know, feeling so bad about ourselves and, and even hating ourselves? And he, he was ha really struggling, like, with he was talking to, the, going back and forth with the translator because he didn't even understand the question because he said, in my culture, I don't think people hate themselves. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, yes. Yeah. 
he was saying, I, I think this feels like a very Western uh, oh, God. thing That's, that uh, a lot of people, and there's a Buddhist um, nun that I love named Pema Chodron, who, she's an American Buddhist nun, and she was saying that she finds it so difficult to teach because even when she says, you know, um, even when she's encouraging gentleness towards oneself, mm-hmm. then people turn it around on themselves and say, I'm not gentle enough. Um, and she oh said, my God. it's so hard to teach. <laughs> oh, yeah. So all, all of that is to say that I don't, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And that's why I was just curious about, you know, if seeing, being able to see the humanity in other people in this way and wrestling with forgiveness and redemption in such a big way, um, you know, if that did have an, ha- if that does have an impact on, um, of course, you know, of course, how can it not? You know what I mean? How can it not? And of course, like I know it, it must be complicated because there's there can be some things that feel unforgivable, right? Or you know, are really well. I, I mean, I I think uh, this is a tough one. But what what I what I think about with all that stuff sometimes is that again, if I if I think about the worst thing that I've ever done, I was. Um, I was 19, and I know the date, October 18th, 1996. And in a lot of ways, like, I'm still there. I'm still in that. Like, that's uh, that's one of the, like, I suffer from multiple PTSD, but that's, that's one of my big ones. Like, my stuck point is right there. Mm-hmm. And the the whole point of it is, when I think about it, when I go through the work of kind of like moving past it, it's like the person that did that and me, the only thing that we have in common is DNA. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I'm not that person anymore. That person's long gone. Um, you know, there's certain things that are still the same. Like I still listen to the same music that that kid did, you know, certain things like that. But as as a man, like that, that person's gone. And it's the same thing for my students who are in their fifties or older. And, you know, they're in for something that maybe they did when they were 18 or 19. Like that, that kid is long gone. Like I'm not meeting that person. I'm meeting someone else. I'm meeting someone completely different. Um, and I think that's like another thing about like the forgiveness and and again like I am I'm I I do believe that um, you know there should be consequences and things like that. Uh, I I do believe in you know that there's laws for a reason and, and that there should be consequences. Um, you know, uh, in in general, like if we want to like you know drilling down into specific laws and specific consequences is a different conversation, but. Uh, the thing in terms of the things that are unforgivable, it's like I'm not meeting those people. Mm. Like I'm, I'm meeting the people on the other side of it. That you know what I mean. Like we don't need to punish them because believe me, they have been punished enough, and they are punishing themselves every day. Um, and the idea of being segregated, like I think it's another thing, like you know, that I've learned about being in there, like, um, the, the idea of being segregated from your family yeah, is like, 
like it's hard for anyone to really comprehend it if it's never happened to you like the inability to see or talk to your family regularly like um you know from you know your mom your dad your brothers your sisters but for a lot of my students it's their children like this is this is a pretty severe um like like it's it's a very severe punishment um even if it's for just like whether it's a year whether it's six months a year or it's 30 years like it's really severe um or how about this the the you know the consequences are harsh and i'm not saying that like you know like this isn't the part where i start talking about like they need to abolish the prison system or like lighten sentences or stuff like that but like what i'm saying is like like the severity of it is is felt um and and it's palpable sometimes like um especially when we have readings that deal with families yeah you know we deal with texts where it's like, well, what's it like, you know, stuff like that. And some of them are like, you know, they're all very passionate about their family and their children and things like that. But like a lot of them say, it's like, man, it's like, I don't see them. Like I can't really, you know, they don't have that same sort of experience that like mm -hmm. maybe you or, you or I had where, you know, you see them every day <laughs> until you get to the point where, you know, what was the story I just told you about? I got out of college and I was like, I have to get out of here now. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, those, those little sort of, uh, joys that you kind of take for granted, um, or that you wouldn't even realize was a punishment until it's taken away. Right. You know? Yeah. I could see how it's just completely perspective shifting in so many ways. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I've, I've never been, I've never been the type of person, maybe I should even say the type of man who's afraid to say, I love you. Um, but I know I definitely say it a whole lot more now yeah. um, than I ever have in my life. I say it routinely to everybody I know every time I see them. Um, just because, and, and by the way, and I don't say it in a frivolous way, and I don't say it in an insincere way. I mean it from a very real place, like um, you're a human being, and I respect you, and your struggles are real, and your life has meaning and you're worthy and you know, you deserve human dignity and respect and I love you. Yeah. And it's one of the easiest things that you can do. Um, uh, I routinely, I routinely end every one of my classes the same way. I always tell them rock on heavy metal rules. I love you. Have a good week. <laughs> and, um, you know, part of it, and, and by the way, like it's weird how that throws people. Like, did you just say that you love me? Yes, I do. I love you. Have a good week. You know, um, um, you know, that idea of kind of understanding what that, you know, regular, just like not like separating that. I love you from a romantic way, from a familial way, from like a brotherly way, uh, a sisterly way and how it's one of the most beautiful things that you can tell anybody. Um, and to, to really understand it, like, like prison is really like, like enforced that to me, um, because it's in such rare commodity, um, love. in those places sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to say like love's in rare commodity, but how about this? The ability to express it, the ability to say it, mm. you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do in those places because, 
um, you know, for, well, forever, for whatever reason, there's a lot of reasons, yeah. you know, it's hard for people outside, <laughs> right? To express I, that's, it sometimes. But that's, so. that's what I mean. Like, yeah. isn't that, isn't that, a, isn't that a sad thing? Yeah. Right. I grew up listening to the Beatles, man. Like yeah. <laughs> all you need is love. Just, you know, um, why is it, why is it such a problem? Why is it such a big deal? So you know? when you say it to your students inside or outside, what does it mean to you when you say it to them? Uh, first thing I think about is, um, friends that have passed away recently and I forgot to tell them and not that they didn't know, but I hadn't seen them. We lost touch and I regret not telling them how much they really meant to me. And you, you know what I mean? Like, and I don't ever want that, uh, I don't want to ever have that regret again because it's a tough one. Mm. Like I forgot to tell you how much you meant to me. You were such a good friend to me. I love you so much. I miss you so much. Um, I think another reason is, uh, um, you know, especially being in men's um, maximum medium maximum security prisons and also uh, youth correctional facilities. I think it's um, a good thing to show a, a male role model who isn't afraid to say, to express love yeah. uh, verbally. Um, another, um, and I would say the third reason is, you know, um, in wake of, you know, the almost, you know, it's hard to not say it as an epidemic, but the, 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 all these suicides that have kind of popped up a lot. Um, if you do, um, you know, not to say that like I am a scholar on suicide, but like, um, I have, uh, immersed myself in the subject from here from, from time to time, uh, reading about it. And if you read any narratives about people who said that they were going to commit suicide and didn't, uh, many times they say, I didn't do it because someone was nice to me that day. Yeah. Someone, someone said hello to me. Someone humanized me. Someone said that they loved me. And if I can, if like, seriously, if I can be that change <laughs> in someone's life, let it be me, mm. you know, because it's so easy. It's the, it's the easiest thing in the world. Um, you know, and and I and I've had and I and don't get me wrong, like I've had a bunch of students where at the beginning they're off put by it, um, you know, by halfway through they roll their eyes um, and they start shouting it along with me because I do it in this rote manner of rock on, heavy metal rules, I love you, have a good week, um, you know, where they're like, we get it, um, but I've also had students that have written to me and said, you know, um, I had a really tough semester and it really meant a lot to me that you said that to me mm. or you said it to all of us. You know what I mean? Like little things like that. It can really, it can change, you know, great things have small beginnings, you know? Yeah. That's great. I think that's actually a great way to, to send off, to end this conversation. Maybe can you, can you say it to the podcast audience? <laughs> Dear podcast audience, <laughs> rock on. Heavy metal rules. I love you. 
and I don't know, I'll talk to you soon or something. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Victoria. Yeah. Hey, Victoria. Mm-hmm. I love you. I think you're great. <laughs> you're one of my favorite people. Wow. This happened so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you liked the episode, I hope that you'll share it and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It helps people to find the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me next time.